Hi, this is Sarah Peretsky, and you're listening to Writer Types. Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. This is Matthew Quirk. I'm Alistair Burke. This is Lawrence Block. This is Kelly Garrett. This is Marcia Clark. I'm Don Winslow. That's a good question. Well, that's an interesting question. I'm glad you picked up on that. This is Steph Post, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and I am once again all alone in the Writer Type studio. I couldn't convince anyone to co-host with me this time around, uh, but I did manage to get three fantastic authors to sit down and talk, so let's get into it. Before we start, I do want to remind people that we're on Twitter, at Writer Types. Uh, I'm always looking for your ideas and who you'd like to hear on the show. Also, the entire archive of past episodes is at writertypespodcast.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So head over there and subscribe to the show, and maybe leave us a review if you feel like it. So, okay, my first guest is Kimberly McCrate. She is the Edgar-nominated author of Reconstructing Amelia and Where They Found Her, and she is back with her latest, A Good Marriage. It's a domestic thriller and a legal thriller wrapped in one and will make you take a closer look maybe at your own marriage. Uh, whether or not that's a good thing, I guess, is, is up to you. So here's Kimberly McCrate. Kimberly, I have read enough mysteries uh, to know that when a book is titled A Good Marriage, it is about anything but. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say that's the case, although it is also, it is a bit about what is a good marriage. Um, it's not that necessarily, I do think actually in the book, there are a couple marriages that are good, um, but they are realistically good uh, in that flawed way of every marriage. So I, I would say there certainly are no perfect marriages in this book. Yeah, and Lizzie sort of has to examine uh, kind of what that means, like what what defines a good marriage for for her and for her friends. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, the, much of the journey of the book is um, it's a lot about Lizzie. You know, the central character is um, investigating the, a murder in a neighborhood she's not a part of, but her own marriage is faltering at the same time. So she's getting a view into these other the marriages of these other people, um, but also is forced to take a look, a harder look at her own marriage, which the reality is it's been faltering for quite some time. Her husband has a drinking problem and they've kind of been fits and starts trying to face that. So certainly as a reader, you're meant to, to read the book and first and foremost, definitely just enjoy it as a, as a mystery and a page turner and all that stuff. But I do want it to be this genuine exploration of what it means to have a good marriage. And I think a lot of the, the expectations that there exist in the world and what we're kind of told makes a good marriage are kind of fallacies. Um, they're really rigid and not so realistic. So through the course of this, you know, it being a mystery, it's meant to examine that as well. Well, and like what Lizzie has to do in this book to me is almost like she almost has to deconstruct a marriage like a crime scene almost, and not only with her friend Zach, who comes to her for help, but but as you say, her own marriage. I mean, was that part of the intention to set out to treat the examination of the relationship almost, you know, like a murder investigation? Well, I would certainly say there's a parallel between how I look at marriage and how I look at like the legal system generally. So there is definitely a parallel in the book meant to be drawn between, you know, there's all these looks at these different marriages, but at the same time, because the book is kind of part domestic suspense, part legal thriller, 
Mm-hmm. There is this whole other part of it that is examining the legal system. And, and we think of it usually as so black and white and right and wrong. And the book really shows that that's really not the case. You know, people are neither, they're sometimes innocent, but also guilty. Um, the prosecution yeah. and the defense both kind of engage in some questionable activities. And so there's that. And that kind of is, is a parallel to the marriages in the book, right? And how yeah. none of it is really clear. Some some marriages that you would think would be the ones that, that are flawed and um, problematic end up being ones that are actually the better marriages. Um, they're just more realistic versions. <laughs> well, now there are obviously elements of yourself in Lizzie. I mean, you, you know, you went to law school, Lizzie is a lawyer. When you put pieces like that in a story that could potentially be seen as being drawn from your own life, how hard is it then to convince people that the rest of it is just made up? I mean, and, and even beyond, like you, you owe no explanation to me, but like when you present a book like this to your actual husband, mm. how, how do you convince him that you're not trying to tell him something through the pages? <laughs> oh, I don't try to convince him of that. <laughs> um, I think at this point, first of all, he knows I may or may not be trying to convince him of something through the pages. So I think that he chooses to see what he wants to see, as is true of most people, by the way, when they read the book, a book written by somebody they know, either you, I yeah. find that people either oversee themselves in the pages. I've had people be like, oh, I know that that character is me. And I'm like, that, no, they're not. Um, <laughs> and, or they don't see themselves at all, which is very funny. You know, you feel nervous as you show, show a book to somebody. So no, I, I don't worry about that. And I, you know, I, it's funny. I feel very, um, yeah, kind of unafraid about it. I, I feel like people can think what they want to think. Well, that's a healthy attitude. I, <laughs> I admire that. But now, it, much like you just described uh, sort of Lizzie's actions in the book, uh, do you uh, so, some days treat your marriage almost like it's a courtroom? And if you have a dispute, you, do you do you break it down in a prosecutorial way? <laughs> Uh, yeah, like a hundred percent, um, except I always win. That's the only difference. Every, every time I always win yet. I'm not the most fun person to argue with. I will say that. So anybody who's been to law schools and was a litigator, isn't the most fun person to, to argue with. Um, but you know what, my husband has his own style and it is tactically genius because it really undermines my approach entirely. So he manages to hold his own in a, in a quite a respectable fashion. <laughs> well, good for him. <laughs> well, now you've written about daughters, of which you have two, in, in reconstructing Amelia, and now marriages, and uh, you know both of those things not necessarily in a good way. What what, uh, what other pillar of domestic bliss are you going to topple over next? It's friendship next. <laughs> it is actually. Um, I'm glad you picked up on that. That that is not actually something people often pick up on. But you're right. The first one's motherhood, second one's marriage, and the third one's friendship. And is that the the particular friendship among uh, adult women? No, actually, it's it's a group of college. They're younger, a bit younger than um, people have generally written about. They're in their early 30s. They reunite uh, a decade after college um, because one of them is kind of struggling. So they they reunite um, and head upstate from New York City to the Catskills for the weekend. And once they get up there, they're these kind of New York City hipsters. They run afoul of the locals in, in the Catskills, but and violence erupts. But it quickly becomes clear that the threat really isn't out there. That maybe it lies closer to home. 
Mm, wow. See, uh, w- with that setup, you you almost w- wrote a, a fun weekend comedy romp, but then, of course, uh, it, it sounds like at your core, you're always going to be a thriller writer, and uh, it took a turn for the worse. It will never have a happy ending if you give it to me. It's actually <laughs> funny because I have a friend who's a romance writer, and we once tried to write something together, and like every time she handed it to me, like we like we're, I don't know how people do that when they write things together, but she would hand it to me, and then it would be like it would turn it would turn so hard dark like right away every time. <laughs> She's like, we, we cannot do this. This is not going to work. But in my books, I hope there is always like this core of humanity. And in fact, at the end of a good marriage, there is really a ray of hope. You know, there is like a love story in it, um, too. And there was in Amelia, too. It was a love between a mother and a daughter. And so, you know, yes, they have this darkness to them, but they're they're meant to define the humanity in those kind of dark stories. Oh, absolutely. I know. Do you think at some point during a relationship, Everyone will look over at their partner, you know, this this person who shares their bed and wonder if they really know them. I mean, I do all the time. I don't know. I think if you're smart, you do. <laughs> I, don't I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what other people do, but I think you're crazy if you don't do that. I mean, listen, because we're human beings, right? I find it most telling, actually, when people do it with their children, people who look at their kids and just can't imagine them doing anything wrong. You know, like they're when they uh, hear they've done something, bullied somebody or done something wrong, they're just shaken to their core that their child could have done this wrong thing. And I'm always like, what, what do you mean? Why? <laughs> like, You know, like, of course your kid can do something wrong because anybody can do something wrong at any given moment. Because we're all going to go through various, and I think a marriage in particular that extends over a long period of time, you're going through so much, right? I mean, your, your marriage is one thing at the beginning, then you have little kids and babies and it's one thing. And then it's a different thing after that. And then you change jobs and it becomes something else. And then somebody's job gets more important than somebody else's job. You know, it's just like, you're constantly shifting and, and changing as a person, right? Over time too. So yeah. now I think there's a difference the way I'm not worried, like, to be clear, I don't like look over my husband, like, what are you doing? Like, I don't, I don't like, I'm not worried. I guess it's a very, and maybe that's odd, but it's a very peaceful feeling. <laughs> you know, like you could do something terrible at any moment. I'm aware of that. I'm not actively worried. It's just kind of an awareness that I, that I have, because I think that's just human nature. Right. Well, and I do think that there's a unique position that spouses of writers have uh, in, in that they have maybe a little bit more to worry about because I, I think this is one of the reasons why my wife you know she read like one and a half of my early books and then she said yeah i'm, I'm good I don't, I don't need to read anymore because <laughs> she, she didn't really want to know what was going on in my head <laughs> yeah no it is it's a lot of information it's a lot of it's a lot of information i think my husband is disturbed by the fact that there's not a lot of positive male characters in my book <laughs> although the ones i think are positive he doesn't even count like i actually think sam is quite like like there's likable and sebi there's likable characters in in a good marriage um that yeah. are men, but he i guess he was looking for somebody completely you know just a hero type right but you know i keep saying to him that then you should just make your gender better <laughs> then you won't, <laughs> not really my fault i can't i can't help you there just make <laughs> better and i will put better men in my box <laughs> hey if if i pick up a thriller and the men are not just total bastards i consider that a win exactly exactly <laughs> Well, uh, before I let you go, uh, let's talk about the exciting news that this book has been optioned by Nicole Kidman uh, for the movies or the TV, whichever, I'm not sure, but uh, that's exciting news. Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, It's, yeah, Nicole Kidman's production 
company Blossom. Um, she runs with Parasari and uh, Amazon Studios. And David Farr is attached to um, adapt the book. So um, it's obviously really early days, but it's very exciting. That's Blossom teamed up with um, HBO is still working on the adaptation of Reconstructing Amelia, my first book. Um, oh, okay. So I have had other books optioned in other ways in between, but it's really nice to be working with them again. That's fantastic. And is that was that something always on the radar is to uh, work your way into Hollywood and that side of the, the writing game? You know, I, I think that um, I really see books visually when I um, when I write them, I see them as a movie. <laughs> um, that's just how it's fun, interesting to talk to different authors because some authors like hear it you know, rather than, than oh, yeah. see it. Uh, so what do you, do you hear it or see it when you like, write? I, I see it. Absolutely. I, I started in screenwriting and I work okay. in Hollywood. My, you know, my day job is I, I work in TV as an editor and producer. So yeah, I'm, I'm a hundred percent. It starts as a movie in my head way before it reaches the page for sure. Right. Right. So I feel like if you're oriented that way, there is a part of me that's like, wait, if I could cut out all the, there's so many words in a novel, if I could, <laughs> there'd be less words in a script. So that is really appealing to me. So, you know, I'm, I'm learning to write scripts. I taught myself to write books. So teaching myself to write screenplays is going to be a process too, but I definitely do um, for sure have aspirations just because it, that to me seems like just creatively would be the most satisfying. Um, yeah. And if I'm completely honest, don't tell anybody in the New York book world this, but it is what I gravitate towards more as a consumer um, than books. <laughs> um, so, and I will, you know, I know this is not being recorded, so no one will no, no, no. this. But it is, it just feels more creatively natural to me. But again, I'm going to try to stay on the the horse I rode in on <laughs> and write my next <laughs> book first. But um, but yeah, for sure, I do I do think it's a little bit about how you how you see story. Hey, anytime uh, w when you're you're ready to make the move, Hollywood is here waiting for you. I'll, I'll keep the light on. <laughs> All right. Well, that is good to know. Thank you so much. <laughs> Next in the hot seat is Tom Pitts. Tom is he's one of those writers on the indie scene who's he's like a great band that you hear of from other musicians who all heap praise on him. He, he's a, a, a writer's writer, as we like to say. His latest is Cold Water, a tough look at the suburban life and what makes a good or a bad neighbor. He's a good friend and it's always great talking with him. Tom Pitts, welcome back to Writer Types. Uh, you've got a new novel, Cold Water, and uh, this is about some really bad neighbors. Uh, and I, I got to ask, have you had uh, experience with bad neighbors in your past? I think, you know, it, it was written uh, while I was uh, living uh, in between Sacramento and San Francisco, right? I was four days in Sac, three days in San Francisco. And we lived on this uh, uh, little suburban block in a sort of... Uh, middle class middle lower uh, class neighborhood and uh i think maybe we were the bad neighbors i i thought, I thought about <laughs> that at the time and you know like uh especially when we were moving it and and you have to uh when we sold the house you have to sort of uh disclose any sort of bad neighbors in the neighborhood or anything uh to the people who are buying and uh i, I realized then that yeah that that would have been us <laughs> Well, and now the book doesn't necessarily take a rosy view of the suburban life. Are you uh, are you kind of a city boy, uh, tried and true? Uh, I'm. Well, I'm my whole adult life. I, you know, I always. It's, it's so weird in, in life when you start realizing you're 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 older. You still have that sort of uh, uh, outlook. Like, well, like later in life when I grow up, I plan to you know <laughs> get a real job. Like, wait, I'm 53. Yeah, I've lived in, this, in the big city, San Francisco, my whole adult life, pretty much. 
and uh, which is a little depressing. But uh, when, so when we were out there and sat, I just realized that, you know, big cities are so sterilized now. There's just not a lot of action going on. And you go out to these places, these like like parts of L.A., like uh, Sacramento reminds me of like the Pomona parts of Los Angeles. Right. And, right. and as far as crime and, and, and the, the stuff like that, that's where it's happening because that's where the hunger is. That's where the trouble is. Yeah. That's interesting uh, for crime writers. It's almost like we have to change our outlook and seek out the places where the crime has moved to. <laughs> Criminals are generally part of the uh, middle and lower class, so they're getting squeezed out like everybody else. You know what I mean? Yeah, especially in San Francisco. That's true. It's kind of like when writers first had to uh, contend with cell phones. You know, you kind of had to uh, think, you're, you know, and, and at first it was like really troubling. Like, wow, all my characters are theoretically connected at all times. How do I write, you know, you know, without doing the, the, the dead battery and that kind of, and just like nowadays, you know, it's just, you have to stay current. And there's just, in, unless you're talking about stock trading uh, uh, crime, there's not a lot of stuff going on, I think, in the upper crust of San Francisco. Well, and even beyond urban and suburban, this is another book that you've said in Northern California. I mean, when you do get out of town, like if you, you know, take a trip, take a vacation or, you know, get out for a convention or something like that, when you, when you visit another state, does it ever inspire you? Like, oh, I, I could set a book here. Are you more determined to sort of do that right what you know thing about the area that you know so well? No, I, uh, uh, absolutely not. You know, I, I called this my Northern California quartet cause I think I'm done with it. And I, and cold water actually ends up on a beach in Malibu, uh, weirdly enough and up by point doom. So it really kind of does, uh, uh, geographically <laughs> spread each novel spreads a little further, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I was spending that time in Sacramento. So I wrote, uh, uh something about Zach and one-on-one I, I spent a little time up in, uh, uh, Humboldt County, uh, researching the weed thing. So I, so I wrote about, uh, that. So I think that, you know, if I ended up stuck in, you know, Kansas for a month, I, I, I would love to, you know, to write about that. I just don't get the opportunity because, uh, you know, cause I'm here uh, living and working and, you know, trying to keep the train on the rails, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, life gets in the way, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> well, now you and I have both uh, spent a lot of time playing in bands and I know for me, like our best shows were always as openers for bands who had a similar sensibility, a similar sound so that you knew that the crowd who came to see the headliners was, was probably going to dig what you were doing. And yeah. I, I find uh, there's a similar thing with writing. So if you could be, on the bill, like an opening act at a reading for another writer or two, and you knew you had the right crowd for your books, who would those writers be? Like who who would show up to that reading and then hear you and go, oh, I got to read some Tom Pitts? You know, it's it's tricky with writing because it's not like a, it's not always just a bite from the book and that's not really what, what the sample, the, the reading is, is, is so much more. And I think the, the readers uh, in my peers who, who really – sell it and that's who you'd want to read with are, are the guys who are you know funny and and deliver uh you know yourself uh, uh I, I love reading with you uh you know johnny shaw uh i read when i read with joe lansdale man he slayed it and my jaw was on the floor you know i, I yeah. know i knew he was going to be good but man he really brought it and the, the performance of it you know yeah that's the trick uh there's got to be some humor involved yeah no i, I think you're absolutely right i think uh you know 
people who always ask advice for reading like at Nora at the bar. And, you know, I've dealt with a lot of people who it's their first time reading and they always want to know like, oh my gosh, what do I pick? What's the right section? What's the right thing to read? And that's one of the things I always tell people is humor always goes over well. And it's, it's, it's a live show. It's a, it's a crowd. People want to be engaged in that way. And laughter is like, is one of the best ways to show that you're engaged in what's going on on stage. Yeah. And to feel the to, to feedback, it's the best way to sort of keep your your, your confidence uh, high too. Humor is, is, although speaking of uh, this book, Cold Water, is not probably the most unfunny of my books, but I, there, I think that's an important element to any real life uh, uh, interpretation of, of dramatic events, like any, you know, heavy situation, you know, crime, or people tend to, to, to laugh their way through it. And I think that that's something that the writers that I admire have a, a, a base of that. Yeah, it's a talent, that balancing act. I call it whistling by the graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> well, like you said, I mean, this is marks a, a quartet of full-length novels, and you've had some novellas. I mean, you've, you've been at this for a while now. How do you think your work has changed since you started? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It, it depends on how much I, uh, I want to beat myself up. Uh, uh, maybe later in the day I could, uh, uh, but, but so far this morning, I'd probably say not enough. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I have this quartet of novels and I, and I think, uh, I, and I feel like a lot of writers are having this sort of weird, uh, uh reckoning or, or facing some sort of metamorphosis, maybe because the world is, or, or, you know, how we're going to be developing stories. But I, I, it sounds really pretentious. Say I've said what I've had to say with crime, and I want to move on. I just I don't know if I can develop any more in, in that end, and I, and uh, uh, I just I don't want to start repeating myself. So I'm not quite sure where to go. Not that I'm trying to change the world, but you know what I'm saying. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And it's I think you're at an interesting crossroads, and I've I've found myself there as well because the the repeating myself thing is is paramount in my mind. Like I do feel like I've written some stuff where. I go back to the well and it's, it's stuff that, you know, the kind of thing I like to read and, you know, more of like a vintage pulp style or a noir kind of thing. And it's, it becomes, you know, you never want to say, oh, it's easy for me, but it does become, you know, a reflex to go back to a certain style of storytelling. But I think any writer who wants to develop and stretch, you do have to change a little bit and change your, the storytelling scope of what you're doing. Yeah, and 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 I always think I with each of these four novels, I thought I was going to write something. I want to write something more character driven. I want to write something more, but you know, and then chapter two, bodies start dropping, and I'm I'm back in the, in the same old shoes. Well, when you sit down now to to start a novel, uh, I mean, aside from trying to come up with something that's that's sort of completely new, I mean, it has writing as much as you have made the process easier each time you start again? Does it feel like, okay, I'm in familiar territory. I know how to do this. Or do you sit down again and it's like the first time you ever did it? Well, it's, it's like the first time uh, each time. And I, and I, I'm realizing now I have a strange sort of uh, uh, things I do to sort of mentally prepare myself. I'd start, you know, just, just the weird habits and movies you watch or, or whatever, whatever it is. But this time, you know, so I, I, I wrote four books pretty much by the seat of my pen. You know, I had, had a sort of an idea, threw some characters in, did the old Stephen King and write my way out. And then I tried it again and I failed at about 20,000 words in. And I tried it again and I failed at about 20,000 words in. The book I'm writing now, I got about 20,000 words in and I could feel the ship was taken on water. So I had to actually <laughs> sit down like a grown up and, and plot that sucker out. 
you know, it's it's a very frail skeleton, but I've never had that before. It's it's a different approach, and it feels like I'm yeah trying something brand new, and it's challenging, and I, it feels like it might allow me ultimately a little more freedom. You know. Yeah. Well, that's good. Mix it up a little bit. It's a face your fears thing. Excellent. Well, we, we look forward to uh, seeing where it takes you. Well, excellent. Well, thank you, sir. Time now to pause and tell you about another podcast I think you'll like. You know, we used to do short stories on the show, but in streamlining our format, they got dropped. But you can still find quality short stories in podcast form at Mystery Rats Maze. These are stories read for you by professional actors and voiceover artists, so they sound like a million bucks. They really sound great. And the stories are right up the writer type's listener's alley. You can find them at mysteryratsmaze.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. They're friends of this show. They are right here in Southern California, so we like to support them and uh, share the love. I think you'll like it. Okay, time now to talk to the Malmans and get some book recommendations. You know, it looks like we might be hunkered down indoors for a while longer, so you know our idea of a summer read might be very different this year. So let's hear what they've got to recommend this time. Well, hello, Malmans. It's so lovely to talk to you guys again. It's always great when uh, I have a chance to, to chat with you guys because I miss you. I wish we were sheltering in place with you, Eric. Oh, yeah. that's Aww. so sweet. <laughs> Do you think our dogs would get along? The new dog is pretty wild around here. Uh, Pebbles? Pebbles the pug? That's right. Yeah, the Pebbles looks adorable online. I, uh, I, would, I would risk it just to meet Pebbles. Did you know Pebbles has her own Instagram account? Now? Are you serious? Yeah, my wife has gone a little cuckoo with this. It's been a long, long time sheltering in place. I, I think that's if that's the worst that's happened. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, we got some some books that we want to talk about, and let's start with you, Kate, because you have been reading uh, one of your hometown or home state heroes, William Kent Kruger, uh, who is he's just beloved out there, isn't he? He is. He and he is a delight to talk to. It just gives you the time of day. Incredibly generous. Incredibly kind. We were. This is going to be the most Minnesotan thing I'm going to say. We were at the Minnesota State Fair going through one of the Lutheran church dining halls for breakfast. And William Kent Kruger served me powdered eggs for breakfast at the Minnesota State Fair. Wow. Yeah, that is like peak Minnesotan right there. <laughs> was, was there the faint cry of a loon in the background? <laughs> Unfortunately, the other like 10 million people that were at the State Fair with us kind of drowned out the loon. So I'm going okay. to assume yes. And he also writes books. He does write books. And uh, I'm reading his newest book, This Tender Land. And he wrote what I'm, I've am i been describing as the Odyssey and Adventures of Huck Finn set in Minnesota during the Depression. Wow. Yeah. It's a standalone book, so it's not his regular Cork O'Connor series. And in this one, there's a, a set of four orphans that escape from the Lincoln Indian Training School in southeastern Minnesota, Odie and his brother Albert, who are the two of the main characters, they end up escaping with their friend Mose and a little girl named Emmy, and they set off to find some family that they're sort of aware of in St. Louis, and they set off on the Gilead River 
Then they're going to take that to the Minnesota River and then down to the Mississippi, all in their canoe, ages 6 to 16. So how bad can it be? You know, they'll just smooth sailing all the way. <laughs> or not. So this sounds like it's not exactly in his usual uh, mystery vein. This is, uh, can we call this, uh, what, a literary thriller? What? How would you define it? Yeah, I think that's a, a really good description for it. But yeah, I'm really, really enjoying it. It's unlike anything I've ever read. Literary is not usually in my, my wheelhouse because that's just not things that I end up picking up. But I'm really, really enjoying it. And I'm really glad that I'm reading it. Maybe this is opening up a whole new door for you. Totally. I mean, it, it, it is the quarantine. And when we come out, I can be whoever and whatever I want. So maybe oh. I'm going to be a literary reader. <laughs> I'm also reading the book because I'm going to be interviewing William Kent Kruger in conjunction with the release of the paperback for um, Once Upon a Crime bookstore in Minneapolis. We're going to be doing a crowdcast interview on May 26th. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Excellent. So uh, I'm assuming people can find information uh, at the website for the bookstore. It's onceuponacrimebooks.indielight.org uh, or just uh, do a Google search for Once Upon a Crime in Minnesota uh, and you can get all the details to uh, tune in and, and hear yeah. Kate grill William Ken Kruger about uh, his recipe for powdered eggs. I will definitely do that. That's right. Now, Dan. Yes, sir. Let us turn to you now. And self-publishing has obviously been a thing now for, I mean, over a decade. It's It's been a while. And you hear a lot of it in uh, in genre publishing, crime fiction. I have not heard a ton about self-publishing in the comics world that you love. But uh, you have a new self-published comic that, that you were uh, discovered recently, yeah? Yeah. And Kickstarter campaigns for comics and graphic novels. It's not a new thing at all. Well, oh, we, we, we found yet another thing I don't know about comics. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hold on a second. I need to update my files. <laughs> um, so keeping actually kind of with our, our Minnesota theme, um, I was made aware of a graphic novel called Blacking Out, written by Chip Mosher and Peter Krauss. The Kickstarter starts on May 26th. Peter Krauss in particular has had a long and storied uh, career in comics um, and is a Minnesota resident as well. And also uh, one heck of a guy, a very kind guy. Well, and now, but has he ever served you eggs? He would. If the situation <laughs> arose, he is that kind of guy. Oh, nice. Yeah. In Minnesota, we're all, you know, salt of the earth, men of the eggs. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Put that on the state flag. Absolutely. I mean, we all have a, we're born with a ladle. Uh, <laughs> so wait a minute so you're telling me if any writer types listener out there comes knocking on your door and has a plate and they just say make me some eggs you will go to the kitchen and make them eggs okay margie i'll make you some eggs. absolutely there's a great <laughs> one line in fargo um kate just quoted it you got to have a good breakfast i'll make you some eggs and it's kind of <laughs> frito so blacking out is the name of this trade this is very much the kind of uh meaty noir tale that i think writer types listeners are going to enjoy appears to be a, a mid-70s crime tale with uh, Conrad as a disgraced uh, former police officer who's basically run out of town, comes back to his hometown of Edenvale, and is trying to make a go of it again. So he gets a job from a the local defense attorney who is defending um, a gentleman who is the father of a murdered girl. And everything revolves around her missing crucifix necklace. And this whole sordid affair is told up against the backdrop 
of the Southern California wildfires. But I can't tell you more without going into spoilers. Um, but we can talk uh, about Peter's work on the page. Um, his art is rich and inky and um, evocative of, of those Nora stories. Um, it's just it's the kind of story that you read through, digest it, and then go back and just absorb it through the pictures. So head on over to Kickstarter and search up Blacking Out starting May 26th uh, for a dose of crime comics. That's uh, that's a good tip. You can be the first on your block and be one of the cool kids. This is our chance. This is totally one of the cool kids. Again, you can come out of quarantine, whoever, whatever you want to be, here's your chance to be a cool kid. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, it was uh, lovely to speak with you guys again. Hopefully uh, we'll all be out seeing the sunshine before too long, but... As we know, the most important thing is for all of us to stay safe. And if we have to hunker down and stay inside and wear our masks a little bit longer, we're okay with that. It's not that much of a burden, right? Absolutely. We're all introverts at heart. That's right. And and there's nothing better to do with your time than enjoy a good book. Exactly. My final guest on this episode is Mary Kelly-Ikoa, who is here with her debut mystery, Derailed, which introduces private eye Kelly Pruitt. And this book has garnered praise from the likes of Kelly Garrett, Alex Segura, and Kristen Lepianca. So let's talk with Mary. Mary, Derailed is your debut novel, so congratulations. This is very exciting. Thank you very much. Now, uh, this is not the uh, best of times, I guess, to be releasing a, a debut novel. It's probably not going as, as well as you had thought. You probably were expecting to be out uh, meeting and greeting, shaking hands with readers, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, it's definitely challenging, but it's the online community has been so warm and welcoming and stepping up to help each other that it's actually been a lot of fun so in that respect, right? If you have to have fun in a pandemic it's nice to be supported, and this is—it's been—it's been okay. <laughs> that's good. Well, that's all right. You're 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 a silver linings kind of gal. I like it. Yes, definitely <laughs> have to be. Well, your PI Kelly Pruitt is a is a second generation PI. So, but uh, this is really her first big tough case, right? That's right. Yes, she's been more in the background of her dad's PI agency. And he, as he was sort of training her, he's, he kind of gives her the, the grunt work. Is that uh, something that you uh, know from personal experience? <laughs> well, having been in the legal field in the um, support staff uh, scenario, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> you, you definitely get to do the, uh, the legwork on things a lot of times, running to the courthouse. And that's exactly what she's doing, process serving and the occasional stakeout, but her dad insulated her a bit. And that's one of the issues that comes up throughout the book. Yeah. I mean, I would think that if you're, if your parents are in a potentially dangerous business, they, they would want to sort of keep you away from, from the danger, but then, uh, oh, here she goes jumping in with both feet. Right. Yeah. She's, <laughs> she really wants to make a place for herself in the world. And she, with, when this opportunity comes up, she decides that this is, the thing she has to do. I, I, th- I think with any PI novel, it really does come down to the character at the center of it. And how daunting is it to, to create a PI character that is going to stand out among all of the, the classic uh, PIs that have been out there? I mean, I think it was definitely something I thought about when I was thinking about her, because I, I think you're right. I mean, there is a certain type of PI that people expect, you know, the single 
you know, Lone Ranger type. So I really did want to make Kelly more of the average girl in some ways, right? She grew up in her dad's agency, but she married and she has a daughter. And even though she's divorced, you know, she has those family connections. And that offers a, a bunch of challenges for her, of course. And and I just wanted her make, to make her a little bit more relatable in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it really does make her rootable in terms of, uh, you know, I always feel sympathy for a single mom who's, who's struggling in there. Her daughter happens to be deaf. So she's got that challenge. And, and I think she does battle those, like you say, those family challenges almost as much as uh, the, the bad guys that she gets on the trail of. Oh, absolutely. And her ex-husband is actually, you know, one of those adversities she needs to overcome, right? Because she's co-parenting and yet she has to keep it even to be a good parent for her daughter, you know, she can't let it get too bitter or too angry. And even though she has reasons to on occasion. Yeah. Oh, those darn, those ex-husbands. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and ex-mother-in-laws that live right next door. <laughs> <laughs> Now that's not from experience, right? <laughs> no, actually, I all of my mother-in-laws, you know, all of them, like two in my life, um, they've been fabulous. So. Well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> well, now you mentioned that you uh, have worked in the legal profession for for years. So, uh, why not write about a lawyer? Well, I, you know, I just was never really as drawn into that character. Maybe it was just a little too close. I lived with it every day. <laughs> I'm not <Right>. sure. <laughs> But, you know, I when in my legal capacity, because I was a secretary and, the, and a manager and different things, I worked with um, process servers and PIs, actually, because I worked in insurance defense for some portions of my career. And um, I always found, found them very appealing. People out on the street and getting things done, doing witness interviews, taking on cases that were a little bit grittier than the lawyer types that I was working with. I found that intriguing. Well, that's interesting. So you get you got a little bit of that ground level view of uh, what the PIs were actually doing. Absolutely, yes, I did get, and I got to meet up, meet up several of them personally, and just you know, I, of course, I wasn't writing PI at that time, but it was all kind of going into the back of my mind and and for future reference. I mean, do you think that someone in that capacity, like in your job where you're not in the spotlight, it's the, the the type of worker who's a little bit off to the side, you can almost be a better observer because eyes aren't always on you and you can sort of, you can lurk a little bit and pick up those little details and, and it's almost an advantage. And the same way that Kelly, it was a little bit of an advantage being underneath her dad's tutelage that she can be a, sort of a more passive observer and, and pick up those little things in a, in a better way almost? I think that's very true. I know just from my own experience, I was very much an observer and it wasn't just the cases or, you know, but it was the people and how they reacted to situations and observing both sides of the coin because, you know, you're seeing the defendant and the plaintiff on a case and seeing how they're all working it and thinking about it. And, you know, it's all a game, right? So it's, who's going to one-up this and do this. And so definitely, and Kelly's the same way. She, um, she's she been watching and learning a lot of what her dad had been doing. Although, again, she he did insulate her. So there's a lot of surprises coming in the book that she had no idea about because he didn't let her see it. it surprises like a frying pan to the face. <laughs> <laughs> well, that one, yeah, that's a little... Uh... <laughs> You know, never make it easy on those characters, right? No, <laughs> make them that's hurt. our job. <laughs> that's right. Make them hurt a little bit. Yeah. 
and and how very writerly to to say that you're you're an observer. I mean, that's that's what we do, right? We we watch people and we make notes. Absolutely, yeah. We try not to let them know we're doing that, just because we want them to act natural and everything. <laughs> but right. we're definitely paying attention. Absolutely. Now you uh, you took a long break from writing for a while, but so what was the thing that inspired you to get back into it? You know, it was a couple of things. Um, I had written for eight years prior, and then I did stop. And during that eight years, I I worked really hard to get to that next level, and it just didn't quite happen. And then I took the break and started a company. And but in 2015, we sold part of the company, and I had turned 50. And I looked around, and I. I saw that novel sitting on the shelf and it was just really kind of thinking that maybe I had some time to take a look at that. Now I had a little room in my life again to go back to writing. I think I licked my wounds a little bit, you know, in the sense of I was ready to try again. And um, that's when I started editing this particular book, which I'd actually written in 1999. Now it's going to be published. Well, excellent. Look look at that. That's an inspiring success story for all (laughs) of our would be writers out there. It's never too late. It's never too late. I'll be 50. Well, I'm 54. So just a few months before my 55th birthday, I'll be debuting my novels. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Don't give up. I, I did notice that you also play music. You're an accomplished piano player. So I'm wondering if you, you use it kind of like I do, where sometimes it helps to just pick up a guitar and get into music as a way to sort of clear your head and, and just block out any other thoughts so that when you come back to writing it, you can really start fresh with a bit of a reset. Is that how you use it? It's definitely how I use it. And I play the piano and the, the ukulele and I just find it's really a nice distraction because when you're trying to teach yourself chords or you're really into music, you really can't think of other things. So it's a real great way to be in the moment and the present instead of having your brain in 10 different places. And uh, I use it to really calm down and relax a little bit. Now, what are the chances you have one of those ukuleles right next to you and you'll play us a little something? <laughs> no chance at all. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I had her. to ask. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's it. It's the end of May already, and I have more great authors slated for June when we'll be back to the twice a month model. This once a week thing is a whole lot of work. But uh, I'll be back with more great guests. And I thank you so much for listening and for telling a friend about the show. We'll talk to you next time.